invite you to not look at your bulletin, but look into your Bibles, because we are staying the course with Isaiah 53 this morning. It's a little different than what we had uh, scheduled, but I wasn't sure if, uh, if we'd be in Isaiah 53 through the holiday weekends, but we are, and I want to sort of exhaust what I think the Lord has laid on my heart in terms of trying to evangelize people, and going into 2022, it uh, should be on our hearts to reach people for Christ. And that is uh, not a mission that I say is an uh, easy one to think through. Evangelism is something that can be extremely awkward on the lightest end of the spectrum to something that is relationships severing on the other end of the spectrum. When you lay it on the line and you say, I love Jesus Christ, he's the Lord of my life, I've given him everything, he controls my circumstances, he controls my decisions, he's invaded my heart and I have strong convictions that guide the way I live, the people I choose to um, keep company with, um, it, it, it's it's something that can divide you from someone else because they say, I'm not like that. I don't, I don't think that way. I don't feel that way about life. I might claim um, the idea of being a Christian, but I'm not someone who, who is completely secure therein. Um, and, and so we need to, we need to go to uh, Isaiah 53, I think, to discover the riches that are there in the gospel. But before we do, I want us to pray. Let's bow our heads in prayer and take a moment and just um, sanctify Christ as Lord at this moment. Lord Jesus, thank you for um, the fact that you are Lord of our lives. Thank you that you have granted to us everything we need according to life and godliness and the true knowledge of you. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the point of all 66 books of scripture and that this chapter in Scripture is a pinnacle picture of who you are and what you've done for us. Thank you for this passage. Thank you that all of the Bible is relevant to our lives always. It is sufficient and authoritative. But thank you for the clear relevance of Isaiah 53. Something written 700 B.C. matters to us 2,000 years post Christ's coming. It's an amazing amount of time difference between then and now and how meaningful this is to us. We thank you for these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me begin um, the chapter by just reading down through verse 5 of Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds were healed. This is an amazing message. And if I was to read the rest, which perhaps I should have, it, it's just amazing. It's written in the past tense, and it's written that way because a prophet was speaking it. 
Isaiah is speaking for God and God is transcendent. He's outside of time so he can do this. He can talk 700 years BC in a way as if the cross has already happened. Who's believed a message like this? One who was pierced through for our transgressions, who, who's stricken and crushed. Past tense? What's he doing here? Well, what he's doing, and we talked about this to, to sort of set the stage for a study in Isaiah, especially Isaiah 53. He's talking in a way as a prophet for Israel in the future. And what I mean by that is not just the future that's already happened to us where, oh, Israel was here when Jesus came and they rejected him. And so, you know, they, they didn't see the message. We're going to talk about that. But Isaiah is actually hopping over 2,000 years ago to the future where ethnic Israel one day will be saved and brought into the kingdom. Romans 11, Romans 9, 10, 11 talk about this, but the future for Israel is not all lost. Even though Israel and the Jews in general rejected Jesus when he came, there's always the remnant. And there's the future promises of the Old Testament saying that, that ethnic Israel will be saved. The 144,000 we know in Revelation will be saved. That's a symbolic number of the 12 tribes and talking about ethnic Israel being saved. But there's an ingathering at the end of days where these promises are fulfilled. And Isaiah is talking for, from the perspective of the, of the Israelites as a nation in the future who are looking back almost incredulously at themselves saying, why did we not believe when Jesus came? That's a big point in Scripture. Israel's unbelief, past, present, and future, is this sort of mystery of the Bible that needs to be solved. It's solving their unbelief solves why anyone doesn't believe because they were the most likely candidates to ever believe. Where did Messiah come from? He came from ethnic Israel. He came from the Jews, from the line, from the line of David. He is the ultimate king. All of this was prescribed and, and thought out in minute detail that Jesus was to fulfill all the law, all the prophets. He's the pinnacle of scripture. He's the point of everything. And for the Jews, they were given the law and the prophets. And all of this story is to make a point that I want you to see. A lot of us get discouraged when people don't believe. They watch maybe the History Channel on Jesus. Maybe they're watching the Chosen series. You finally got them to download the app and watch the Chosen. Okay, great. You know, or, or the passion of the Christ. Did you watch how graphic that was? That was so gruesome. How could that not be true? Um, all the details, all the facts, all the historical evidences, all the archaeology, all the archaeology. They've dug another layer. See, it's it, these cities from the Old Testament. They were really there. If we could just find Noah's Ark, I've heard that before. Then everybody would believe, you know, if we could just excavate that. You know, if that celebrity would believe, if, if that person would watch that celebrity's testimony, he's got everything, and, and Jesus was really everything compared to everything else that he had, and so the logic has to be, the philosophy has to be believable enough. Evidence that demands a verdict, it's got to demand the verdict in someone's heart. Why don't people believe? Why did the Jews not believe? It's amazing. Jesus is one of them, and yet... Yet they rejected him. They did not want him. And Isaiah 53 is the oft-neglected chapter in the Jewish tradition, uh, traditions and reciting in the temple. They won't, they won't recite Isaiah 53 or haven't historically. They don't understand it. It makes no sense to them. Even verse 2, you see, 
It, or verse 1, part 2 of verse 1, and whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who's believed what he has heard from us? Um, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who's believed this message? Who's believed what we've been saying now? And the arm of the Lord, who, who's the arm? The arm is God. The arm is always speaking of the strength of God, Yahweh, who in the Old Testament parted the Red Sea, who had delivered Israel from the bondage of slavery in Egypt. And this arm of the Lord, this picture of strength, this picture of strength, he's going to come. And when the arm of the Lord came 2,000 years ago, he came as a little baby. And we talked about that, the incarnate son. He came as someone who was not the power leader, the mega lord, the mega leader. He was Lord. But he came in a way, um, enfleshed in full humanity, fully God at the same time, but the carpenter's son who is the slave and the, the servant of all and giving truth. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But to see Jesus as the arm of the Lord, you have to see him by faith. You can't just be wowed by um, signs and wonders and powers and that be enough, right? So this arm of the Lord came as a servant and they rejected him. They did not want this Jesus. People this day will not want Jesus. You have to embrace him by faith. This was Paul's point in Romans 10, where he's um, quoting Isaiah 53, 1 in Romans 10, this great faith chapter. He says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel, Romans 10, 16. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Who's believed it? Romans 10, 17, the next verse. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Something needs to happen for all the change that's loaded in the machine, all the Bible verses, all the Awana, all the um, VBS, all the Sunday school, all the Christian school. Something has to hit in the heart where there's true conversion and everything drops and you go, okay, I get it. I see it. How do we get people there? What What's wrong? What is, what's the log jam that is um, keeping someone from the Lord? Well, this is an amazing chapter in an amazing book of the Bible. Isaiah is something that I am growing to appreciate now. Some 30 years in the Lord, I'm looking at this chapter and going, this is really an amazing book of the Bible. The first 39 chapters are this judgment on Israel, on the southern kingdom, where in Judah, you have Isaiah who's standing there at 700 BC and he's going, Babylonian captivity, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, it's 100 years away, Nebuchadnezzar's coming, and you deserve it because you've been given over to idolatry and sin and um, you've synchronized with false religion. It sounds all too familiar with what our country is doing, where it's digressing and digressing and digressing. And I mean, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. We're in the same situation that they were in. So let's not look down, at, down our noses at them. We're just, you know, as a nation drinking the Kool-Aid of this world and compromising. And that's what Isaiah is predicting here. And he's saying that um, there's a lament because... Judgment is coming and Israel is also 
going to disbelieve this message, which is the saving message of the servant song. The second half of Isaiah, the second half is 27 chapters, paralleling the Bible, 39 and 27. You know, the second 27 makes up four different servant songs, the chosen by God, servant song, Isaiah 49, suffering servant, Isaiah 50, and then the end of the suffering or the servant song, which is the end of Isaiah 52 and and chapter 53. Really, the whole lament song, this fourth song, is captured by Isaiah 52, 13 through Isaiah 53, 12. Right in the center of this lament song is verse 5, which is the gospel. Pierce for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. By his chastisement, we're, we were brought peace and by his wounds were healed. This is the gospel. This is what we need to know. This is what we need to not miss. The Jews saw this as scandal, someone dying as a substitute um, for those who deserve to die. That just makes no sense. They want to overlook this passage as something that just makes no sense whatsoever. So if you're taking notes, it's answering Israel's unbelief because they had three opportunities and missed it. Answering why people don't believe in Jesus as Messiah by tracing Israel's three opportunities to believe in Jesus. Number one, they missed their first opportunity in the past because they should have believed before the Messiah came. They should have believed. They should have seen what was true. That's why all of this is um, written in the way that it is. They should have seen it. They're incredulous here, saying we should have seen it. In the Bible in the future, in Hosea, Zechariah, and Romans, it all speaks to this future ingathering. Romans eleven twenty five and 26 speaks of how we are Gentiles. We're, we're brought into the kingdom now, but there's a partial hardening on Israel. But one day that's going to be released. That's going to be opened up. Hosea 3, 5 talks about this. Israel's going to return. Zechariah twelve ten. There's going to be a blessed outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Israel. And that's where they are looking. If you look back at Isaiah 52, I can't resist some of this background just to whet our appetite. Verses 13, 14, and 15 get big armfuls about redemptive history. Verse 13, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond, beyond human semblance. Yes, he was bruised for our iniquities. He was crushed. He was beyond the appearance of a, of a human on the cross. And then he was highly exalted, verse 13 talks about. And then verse 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. This is the end times, Revelation 19. So you have Jesus coming, he was crucified, he's exalted, he's ascended to the right hand of the Father, and guess what? He's coming back. That's redemptive history in three verses by Isaiah, 700 BC. It's incredible. It's all there. And that's what we're looking at. We're looking at Jesus' return. It's coming, and all of Israel is coming into the kingdom at that time in the future. That's what we're seeing, and we're seeing through their mindset in verses 1 and 2, this question, why didn't we believe? Why did it 
take us that long to understand that this arm of the Lord, this tender shoot, this young plant, verse 2, this root out of dry ground was truly Messiah. We couldn't see beyond, beyond the flesh in that moment. We should have. We should have seen him coming. Well, to answer this question and put a little bit more practical meat on the bones, turn in your Bibles to Luke 24. Luke 24, this is the story of Jesus post-resurrection. He's talking to the two on the road of Emmaus. And I've read through this a lot and thought this through, but this is a text that if you answer and ask this question about unbelief, if you're answering unbelief, they are the perfect example of Jews who, who get all the data up to the point of the resurrection and they're still not believing. It's incredible. They're just dangling on the, 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 the pivot point, that little tip of we, we need to believe, but we're still not all the way there. Look at verse 17. This is Jesus talking to them. He said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Clopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem? who does not know the things that you that have happened there in three days. How weird to be rude to Jesus, right? That's verse 18. And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They wanted the big arm of the Lord. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. It's been three days. That's exactly what Jesus predicted. And they're just incredulous. They're just going, it's been three days and nothing's happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Can you believe that? It's amazing. He's not there. Angels are saying he's alive. It's been three days. Still not putting it together. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb. We found it just as the women had said. But they did not see. But him they did not see. And he said to them, and he's diagnosing unbelief right here. This is it. Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe. Slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now, here's how he solves their unbelief. Verse 27. He preaches. He preaches Old Testament. All right, now, you got to catch this. Okay, what's the best way to prove that Jesus is raised from the dead? Physical evidence, right? Here he is standing there, right? It's incredible. Like, I'm here. That's how you're going to believe. No. Jesus goes to the preaching of the word and goes to the Old Testament. (laughs) Like if you're going to pick somewhere in the Bible to preach, to really like light up a crowd, you don't usually go to the Old Testament, right? Because you're like, man, people don't understand that, you know, where does Jesus go? Well, the New Testament hasn't been written yet, but he goes to the scripture. He goes to the scripture because the scripture is what penetrates the heart. It's the seed of the word of God. That God turns the lights on through in people's minds and hearts where they believe. And he preaches himself, but he's preaching the scripture. And beginning, verse 27, with Moses, who wrote all first five books of the Bible, and all the prophets. You have all the major prophets, all the minor prophets. 
He interpreted to them in all the scriptures. So that's including now the wisdom literature. You have Proverbs. Um, you have Psalms, which you could take prophetically as David would be like a prophet. And you have, you have Proverbs. You have wisdom literature. You have poetic literature. Psalm of, Song of Songs. All of this is proving Christ. In all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. He gave a... It's the word interpret, which is like he's, he's, it's like hermeneutics. He's interpreting scripture to show, he's clarifying scripture to show that it was all about him. It was all about him. It was always all about him. It's what he's doing. It was supposed to be that way. It should be that clear. God holds us accountable to see this ourselves and to believe this. If you're... Wanting an outline in this series, it's, you know, first of all, they, they should have believed when, uh, that Jesus was coming. They missed the Messiah in the past. But point two, when Messiah came, Israel should have believed when he came. Why didn't they believe? What was wrong? What was keeping them from understanding the truth? Well, again, they were slow of heart. People don't believe because they have a heart problem. They have a heart condition. They're slow of heart. They're blinded by an appetite for sin and pleasure instead of God. We find delight and pleasure in the Lord once God opens our eyes to see him. But you can, you can just you know, work and work and work and work with people and try to get them to believe and they won't until God turns the lights on. They're slow of heart. So what does Jesus do to remedy this? He preaches Old Testament scripture. Verse 27. Now, what was in the sermon? Well, we don't know exactly. If you're honest, we, we know the content of scripture is the Old Testament. And we know the point of the context of the content of scripture is the things concerning himself. It was all about him. The law, the prophets, everything was about Jesus. That's what we know about what Jesus said. But really, we don't know exactly what he said or how he tied it together. But I want to take a stab this morning at preaching what Jesus may have preached and what he may have said. And I'm doing this as a bit of a refresher course for all of us going into 2022. This was the fastest year that I've ever experienced I don't know how it goes faster as you get older, but it seems to do that. I really just got used to saying 2021. I mean, it's really going to be hard for me. I know I physically write checks still sometimes to put 2022. It's a lot of twos going on there. But as we do that, I want us to look fresh at Scripture and see Jesus from the Scripture this morning. And so I took a, a a lot of this content for the sermon series and the way these verses are and categories are laid out from a book called The Gospel According to God. It's written in 2018 by John MacArthur. It's a good book I'd recommend it to you. And I just laid out these verses. I'm not sure how exactly I'm going to preach them to you. I did it just by preaching it first hour. I'll do it again. But the categories are, are here in two ways. One, you have indirect predictions of Christ, pictures from the Old Testament that all pointed to Jesus, and then you have direct predictions. So let's go through some of these. Here's the indirect pictures, the taking a stab at Jesus' sermon content. Number one, Noah's Ark. It pictures Jesus as our true ark. 
He's our savior. He's the one that brings us through the waters of divine judgment. He protects us. The eight were saved. We get to be saved in the ark of Jesus, 1 Peter 3.20. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which, that is, eight persons were brought safely through the water. The ram of Abraham offered as a substitute for the son Isaac, Genesis twenty two thirteen. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And the Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son, substitutionary atonement. Passover lambs happening all the time. Exodus twelve. Verse 3, Jesus is the final lamb sacrifice. Exodus 12, 3, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of the month, every man shall take a lamb according to the father's houses, a lamb for the household. Verse 7, take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses, which they eat it. Numbers 9, 2, let all the peoples of Israel keep the Passover at the appointed time. Let There shall be none of it until the morning nor break any of its bones, which is an allusion to Christ on the cross, not having any of his bones broken. According to all the statute, the Passover, they shall keep it. John 1, 29, on the next day, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, what? Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, cleanse out all the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, for you are unleavened. For Christ is our Passover lamb who has been sacrificed. The manna in the wilderness. Remember that? Exodus sixteen fifteen. the provision of the bread of life. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said, it is bread that the Lord has given you to eat. Can you see Jesus saying this? To He had an audience of two, right? The, the bread, the manna. People of Israel ate the manna 40 years till it came to be a habitable land. That's verse 35 of Exodus 16. They ate the manna. Till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. John 6, 32. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. And see him explaining it? It wasn't Moses who did that. But my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Here's the bronze serpent. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Numbers 21, 6. Then the Lord said, so Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And people came to Moses and said, we've not, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may, that he take away the sins from us. Moses, help us, help us. So Moses prayed for the people and Moses said to the Lord, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And the serpent, and if the serpent bit anyone, if he would look at the bronze serpent, he would live. John three fourteen. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must, this is Jesus speaking for himself, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. He's making sense of the cross to these people on the road. That's why I was lifted up, all symbolizing the crucifixion. You have all the offerings in Levitical law, burnt offering, grain offering, peace offering, sin offering, guilt offering, all fulfilled in Christ's atonement. 
The Day of Atonement, you have the sacrifice and scapegoat, Leviticus 16, 7 through 10. Two goats set before them at the entrance of the tent. Aaron cast lots to see which goat fell to which. Roll the Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord as the sin offering, but the goat on which the lot fell um, for the other shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement for it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness. One crushed, one slain. One bloody, one free, one sent into the wilderness, alive and well. That's where that goat, because we've had a sacrifice given to us. Remember the story of the rock? Moses was instructed to hit the rock. The people were quarreling, Exodus 17, 2. Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? And they grumbled. Moses cried to the Lord, what should we do for these people? They're ready to stone me. He said, behold. He said, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, taking your hand the staff, which I struck um, the Nile with, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there at the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it. Numbers 28 through 11. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, here now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4, Paul says this. I'm sure Christ was saying it. For you know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses and the cloud in the sea and all who ate the same spiritual food and all drank from the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual app capital R the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. It was all about Jesus. I know I'm just belaboring the point, but I think this is what Jesus did. It's all about him. Jonah in the belly of the fish three days. Jesus said in verse 12, chapter 12 of Matthew, verse 13, an evil and adulterous generation seek for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish. So will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. It's in the tomb. Jesus was the rejected cornerstone. He's the shepherd of the flock. He's the stone cut out of human hands who will destroy Antichrist at the second coming, Daniel 2. He's the branch of David's family tree, the shoot of the stump of Jesse, Isaiah 11. Christ's millennial reign as king is predicted in Psalm 72. Messianic prophecies about Jesus refer to David, but they refer to, uh, to Jesus in view of David who'd already died. Listen to a couple of these, Jeremiah 30, verse 9, and they shall serve the Lord their God and David, their king. Well, David was dead. How are you going to serve David? It's David whom I will raise up for them. Ezekiel 34 says the same thing. My servant David, he's the one shepherd. He shall feed them. He's the prince among them. All right, those are the indirect predictions. Let's move to some direct ones now. The Proto-Euangelion, that's Latin for first gospel. First gospel, Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head, you will bruise his heel. Two lines, you have Satan's line. This is a curse on Satan, the serpent, the serpent's line. Everybody's born in sin. The wages of sin is death. 
Everybody's earned this curse and they are part of this curse and born into the curse under the federal headship of Adam's sin. They are born into this. And then when you are born again, which is the offspring of Mary, which is Jesus, you have the line of Jesus and everybody that's born with the seed of the word of God, born again into eternal life is saved. Galatians 4, 4. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. First John 3, 8. The reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus is the great prophet that Moses um, predicted. He foreshadowed. He is a greater prophet than Moses. He's the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 7. The son of man is going to return in the clouds. Jesus used this of himself 80 times as a title. I am the son of man. Yes, born of man, fully flesh, full humanity, fully God, fully Messiah. I am Daniel chapter seven, returning in the clouds. And all of the scripture says he reiterated that when he was here in Matthew 24, 30, Mark 14, 62, Revelation 1, 7, he's returning in the clouds. Son of man, he's from the line of Abraham, from the tribe of Judah, from um, the line of David. He's the offspring of Abraham, Galatians 3.16, Revelation 5.5, he's from the root of David, the conqueror. Matthew 1.1, he's the fulfillment of, of the genealogy through the Davidic line, being a son of Abraham, a son of David. He's born of a virgin, Isaiah 7.14. He's born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2, Jeremiah 13.15, um, predicts the slaughtering that Herod um, fulfilled when he slaughtered the male children outside of Bethlehem, Isaiah 40, 3 and 4, Malachi 3, 1, and, and Malachi 4, 5 and 6 predict the forerunner, John the Baptist, which is all fulfilled in the gospel accounts. Psalm 69, 8, he was rejected by family members. Old Testament references to Jesus as God incarnate. Hebrews um, 1, 1 through 9 is quoting directly Psalm 45, which says, The Son of God, you are my Son, you are God. It's just very clear in Hebrews 1. He's incarnate, he's sovereign, he's the eternal high priest of Psalm 110. Um, David, Psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. You have God saying, Sit at my right hand. That's the Son of God whom. The enemies are all going to be his footstool. These are word pictures. There are word pictures and, and references all throughout that are direct. He was hated without cause. Psalm 69, he was hanged on a tree, cursed by God. He was taken down before sunset, Deuteronomy 21. Daniel's prophecy, 70 weeks, predicts exactly the triumphal entry of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. Zechariah 9.9, he came on um, into that triumphal entry, riding on the foal of a donkey, Matthew 21, 4 and 5 connects that to Zechariah 9, 9. Your king is coming to you righteous and you have salvation from, from him humble and mounted on a donkey, on the colt, on the foal of a donkey, Zechariah 9, 9. There are details about the crucifixion. That form of, uh, of uh, capital punishment had not been invented when these things were predicted, but you have uh, Judas Iscariot, who was um, the betrayer, Psalm 41, 9. He was a close friend, a trusted friend. He ate bread. He lifted his heel against him. Psalm 55, he was a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We had counsel together. We walked in the throng. That was his betrayer. The exact amount of money was, was shown to be 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah 11, 12, and 13. You can get all these references. They'll be online with the notes but um, they weighed out my wages, 30 pieces of silver. 
And the Lord said to me, throw it in, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord. All this is predicted 700 years before Judas did that. The scattering of the disciples, the betrayal, the arrest, Zechariah 13, 7. Um, there's, um, Zechariah 13, 7, awake. O sword against my shepherd. This is all the prediction of what was happening at the Garden of Gethsemane. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. The beatings and abuse Christ received were specific. Micah 5.1 speaks of the rod that they strike against the judge of Israel on the cheek. The high priest struck him on the cheek, Matthew 26. The temple guard, the hands of the Romans, Matthew 27. The scene of the cross, Psalm 22, predicted the soldiers casting lots, Psalm 22, 8. Sour wine being given, Psalm 69, 21. Legs remaining unbroken, Exodus, 20, Exodus 12, 46. And then that was fulfilled in John 19, 31. Shall not break any of its bones. The piercing of the side of Jesus by the Roman soldier, that was Zechariah 12, 10. We, he was pierced through for our transgressions. The resurrection was predicted, Psalm 2, 7, Psalm 16, 8, and 11. Except before you always, because you're at my right hand, should not be shaken, my heart is glad. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, to death, or let the Holy One see corruption. He was in the tomb. Peter preaches at Pentecost, there would not be corruption. Jesus rose from death. Messiah's replacement, as the replacement for Judas was predicted, Psalm 109 um, verse 8, Acts 120, Psalm 68, 18, Christ's ascension is there. You ascended on high, Psalm 68, 18, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Was that how Jesus preached it? Well, I hope not, because, you know, I'm just me. But I, it's the scripture. To the degree that he preached scripture and said this was about him, this is what he was saying. It's just truth. So why wouldn't someone believe this? What makes this credible? What makes this real? Because you have Old Testament truths where New Testament documentations are showing that it's fulfilled precisely and accurately. But what really makes it all work? We'll go back to the story of Luke 24 with the two on the road to Emmaus. What was their response? Was there any resolution with them? Verse 28, so they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Look at verse 31. This is belief. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. What's interesting about that is that everything was about believing in what the scripture said to be true about Jesus more than the experience of sitting with Jesus. It's very important to understand that. A lot of people will build their entire theology around experiences. People are building all kinds of conspiracy theories today about experiences. If you want to watch people polarize and swing to one perspective or the other on any of the current issues that I'll just not name right now that people are polarizing about, they will invariably go to an anecdote, a story, an experience. Well, this happened to this person. Well, that happened to that. Well, people do that theologically and they say, well, that happened and that's irrefutable because it happened and I saw it. 
And so that's why I believe in the way I believe. What Jesus does is he goes, as soon as they begin to recognize him for who he is and they have the, ah, it's Jesus, he's gone. Trust the truth. What does the scripture say? What is the scripture proving to be true in your heart? How do you have confidence as a believer? When you hear the truth, the Holy Spirit strikes in your heart, this is true. That's it. That's how, you not, that's how you don't doubt your salvation. That's how you put it on the line. That's why you tell people truth. Because the truth is what changes hearts. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, here it is. Did our hearts not burn within us while he talked to us on the road? And while he opened to us the scriptures. That's the point. That's the Second Peter chapter 1, the, the more um, convincing word. It's not the, even the, the parallel there. It's too much to get into, but he's, he's saying, you know, we, Peter's saying, I had an experience on Mount Transfiguration, but I have a more sure word in my heart where the day dawns and the morning star rises in my heart. That's Second Peter 1. It's like, wow, I believe this is true. My eyes are open, and it's from the content of Scripture. Isaiah 50, 53, 1 again. Who has believed what he has heard from us? Who's believed this? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Remember, Isaiah, going back to him, he had seen the ultimate revelation of Jesus in the Old Testament. The Mount Transfiguration moment of the Old Testament is Isaiah chapter what? Six, right? Six. The year King Uzziah died, he saw the Lord high and lifted up and thrice holy. These seraphim are going around and saying, you're holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and is to come. And Isaiah says, I'm a man of unclean lips. Woe to me. Judgment on me. I'm melting in your presence. The mirror of the holiness of God is showing him how sinfully sinful he really is. Out of the mouth, the heart speaks. So when he said, I have unclean lips, he means my whole being is unclean. So God provides that symbol of the coming sacrifice by the seraphim with tongs, taking the coal, hot coal off the altar and putting it on his lips and that he would be pure and that he would know with confidence that he's been made right with God. That's illumination. That's where he sees the Lord. And in that moment, he's called to ministry. What does it mean to see the Lord in this way? Well, ultimately, it's the difference between something that's notional up here where you have a lot of data and something that's real to you in your convictions. In the religious affections, this was uh, something Jonathan Edwards wrote about a lot, but in his book, The Religious Affections, he said there's a difference between touching honey with your hands and going, you know, this is honey. It feels like honey, and I've been told that's honey, so that substance must be honey, and actually taking it and tasting it in your mouth. When we, in our hearts, by faith, taste and see that the Lord is good, that's believing. That's where we know that it's all true and real. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus picks up on the calling of Isaiah. If you think about it, we don't have time to plumb the depths of all this, and I'm going to pick it up next week, but... Isaiah's calling was one that would be confusing to you unless you understood the doctrine of illumination. In Isaiah chapter 6, this is what God said to Isaiah. He said, you will indeed preach, but you will indeed hear, but 
never understand and you will indeed see but never perceive. That's what, how people would respond to Isaiah's preaching. For this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears they can barely hear and their eyes have, have closed lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. I'm quoting from Matthew's account of Isaiah 6 and that calling. This is no calling that a seminary student really wants. When you're in Bible class, you're not looking to influence people to not believe. You're looking to influence people with the word of God so that they will believe and grow. But this calling and commission from Isaiah 6 that's repeated four times in the four gospels by Jesus is explaining why people don't believe. We give the word of God, we give it faithfully, and it's coming as a two-edged sword. In one sense, it's opening people's eyes, and in another sense, the word of God is closing people's eyes. You've heard this over and over. The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. It's, it's having a dual effect all the time. Why were the parables um, presented? They were presented in two fashions for two reasons. They were presented to clarify spiritual truth and make them concrete so you can believe them and understand them in stories. But they were also meant to hide the truth from people that were already condemned because of their sin and their willful rejection. It's a two-edged sword. The Bible is, is cutting and making things clear, and it's, it's cutting in a way where it's condemning people in their own sin and in their judgment. So belief and unbelief is up to kind of two things, whether someone is repenting of their sins and whether the Holy Spirit is illuminating the heart. Sovereign grace is what saves. It's always only what saves people from their sins. So how, how do you gain encouragement from this going into 2022? Well, let me just tell you this. There's a reason that we gather, that as many of us gather on a you know, post-New Year's Sunday morning in negative seven-degree windchill factors. Why do we do that? Because we believe this is true. And because you thought in your mind that I might open the Bible and declare it as truth. That's why you came. Why do people not come? Why do people not receive the truth? Well, because they still want their sin and they still need rescue by sovereign grace and they need us to bring the truth to bear on their lives to see what will happen. And how you do that is very difficult. And I was talking to somebody about that between services and it's awkward to start the conversation. But once you start the conversation with someone about Jesus... The awkwardness really is less about what you've done and more about what the truth is doing. You need to move the emphasis away from yourself to the truth and just say, can we discuss truth? These days, people are looking for answers. They're looking for something to fill the holes that they're seeing produced by the news feeds and the different dramatic debates that are going on. And you can give them truth. Hey, let's look at this from a different angle. Let's bring you to truth. Let me explain to you how this was all about Jesus and he's our hope. 2 Corinthians 4 says, when you believe the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ is displayed in your heart. Don't you want to see people's, the lights come on? Well, I do. And I'm taking the challenge. I need to preach the gospel more than I ever have before to everyone, to everyone. And just unashamedly do that. Try it. Smile when you do it. Give, give the gospel. Give people the truth and see, see what happens. 
Some people will be like the two on the road to Emmaus. He said, man, didn't our hearts burn within us? I mean, they were, they were amazing because what I found with the two on the road to Emmaus is they not only had their eyes and hearts open, but they acted on their faith. Listen, let me just finish this and we'll go to communion. It says, did our hearts not burn within us? While we talked, while he talked to us on the road, that's verse 32 of Luke 24, while he opened to us the scriptures and they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed. There's the conviction and he has appeared to Simon. This is faith in action. This is telling. And they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And you say, what is, what's going on here? Was Jesus evangelizing the two on the road to Emmaus? Were the two on the road to Emmaus going to the 11 to reach them for Christ? Yeah. Reach everyone for Christ. Everyone. Even your nominal Christian. You bring people to another level by talking to them about Jesus. So they can seal their own confidence in their own mind that this is truth. And this is real.